Matthew 18, beginning, beginning to read at verse 21, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive one another from your heart. Good morning. Hello. You all seem slightly asleep. Good morning. Um, Owen mentioned that, um, and I forgot to say this earlier, Owen mentioned in the prayers that as well as Andy being ordained yesterday, Robin Parry, who was for many years a member of our evening congregation, was also ordained. He's now a curate in the Worcester East team, mainly going to be based at St. Martin's on the London Road, so do pray for him. Uh, but that would be a great opportunity for them to have such an amazing guy. And those of you who remember Rosie, who was part of the church here for many years on the staff team, she is ordained, being ordained right now in Gloucester Cathedral, and quite a number of us uh, are there. Kath and the children are there. Um, so pray for her and Pete and the kids as well. That would be great. When I was a curate, I'm not saying this will happen to you, actually, but when I was a curate, there was a particular moment when uh, I was happily doing something in my office. Uh, my curacy was in New Zealand. Uh, just for context, I was in uh, a beautiful church in the center of Auckland, and I was in my office doing something, and out of nowhere, this guy barged into my office. He'd come up to the church office, he'd barged his way past reception, through the corridor, found where my office was, slammed open the door, walked on in and said, you idiot! 
I vaguely knew who he was. It was a much bigger church than this one. I knew his son, but I didn't really know who this guy was. And I'm thinking, what the heck have I done? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm constantly saying sorry as a leader. That comes with the job. But in this time, I was thinking, I, I don't think I've done anything to upset you. He said, I can't believe it. You should have given my son that job. Now, long story cut super short. Have I upset the baby? Sorry. Um, uh, that's what anger does to you. Um, is basically his son had, uh, he thought, applied for the youth work job we had at the time, and his son had applied and actually had withdrawn his application before we got to the interview process, but he hadn't told his dad this. So when we announced who the youth worker was going to be, this father was furious because he thought his son was the best person for the job, and the son hadn't had the guts to go and tell the dad that he actually didn't want to do the job for reasons that will become apparent as we go. And so this guy was angry with me because his son hadn't got the job that he thought his son should have. We are in this little teaching series called What's Killing Me? And today, uh, the topic is anger. And what we're trying to do in this series is say, what are the things that actually are making us sick emotionally, relationally, spiritually, deep in our soul? Not body, physical sickness, but soul sickness. One writer says it like this, and I think he's right. He says, physical sickness we usually defy. But when it comes to soul sickness, he says, we often resign ourselves to it. We see no hope for getting better. We don't really understand why we struggle with anxiety or fear or anger or all these things that uh, perhaps we could address. If we had a whole year, we could fill a series. There's so much stuff, isn't there? I'd actually go further and say, I don't think we just resign ourselves to it. I think often we even deny that we're sick when it comes to certain things. There's shame attached to some of these issues. And so rather than face up to them, we just deny they exist. That's particularly true, I think, when it comes to anger, which is the focus today. Here is anger personified brilliantly in a film by Disney Pixar called Inside Out, which was written for children, but actually is good viewing for adults in terms of, A, understanding what on earth is going on in here or in here, but also how on earth to handle other people. And if you are a parent, it's great parenting teaching manual, basically. So this character is Anger. We'll come back to him in a moment. Anger is a basic human emotion. It's part of being human. Anger is something we have. We all struggle with it. We actually need anger. Anger at its best is a good force. Sometimes it will save your life. It will trigger the fight instinct in you that might be necessary for you not to die in a situation or to protect somebody else. The issue, as we'll see, isn't that we have anger. It's that we don't handle it very well. Actually, people who've studied this say that anger is the most powerful of all the emotions. Experts say that it's the equivalent in power to some sort of addictive substance or habit. It's got this power to consume us, to trap us. 
And because anger hurts people, there's a lot of shame and denial attached to it, just like there might be with addictive patterns. Hurt people hurt people, right? And so rather than facing up to it, we just find all sorts of ways to try and avoid facing the music. And yet, actually, we all know, don't we, if we're honest, that in different ways we have a struggle with anger at different times, some of us more than others. It is this powerful force. And unchecked, in its impure, broken form, anger is highly destructive. Actually, what the experts say is it is the most destructive force when it comes to your body. It's way more toxic for your physical health than anything else. It causes stress and anxiety. It puts a massive load on your heart. It puts you in much greater danger of heart attacks, of strokes. Some of you will know, perhaps, that in your body yourself. So as well as being powerful and destructive physically, it's also, as we well know, something that can rip apart relationships. Often to such a destructive level that they can never be repaired. Anger can do permanent damage to your body and to the body, to marriages, to relationships with children, to relationships at work, to friendships. More often than not, when we're doing pastoral work, somewhere in the mix is some anger being expressed in one way or another. It's killing us. You may not be someone who is massively struggling on the anger stakes, but you may well be living with someone who is, working with someone who is. I found a great video on YouTube of some office anger, but the video resolution is so poor it wouldn't work in here. But um, anyone ever been in the office where someone's just lost the plot all of a sudden? Yeah? Uh, Obviously not in our office, never happens, but you know. Now, so I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, 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 that's true, but me, I don't really get angry. I know people who do, but I don't really. Well, the reality is you may not be angry like anger from inside out. We're going to show a little video just to kind of get you feeling it. Uh, Here he is um, losing the plot several times in the movie. They've put them all together in this clip. So if we roll that, that would be good. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Right, here comes an airplane. You like to read minds, Meg? I got something for you to read right here. Let's just be calm for one that's it! No, 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 breathe. Find your happy place. That worked. Well, what would you do if you're so smart? I'd tell you, but you're too dumb to understand. What? Of course your tiny brain is confused. Guess I'll just have to dumb it down to your level. Sorry I don't speak moron as well as you, but let me try. Triple them gun. 
so if you know the movie, you know that in the end, his anger actually gets them out of trouble. So it kind of slightly gets redeemed. But that is the classic personification, isn't it, of anger? Someone who completely blows their top. Pressure builds on the inside. Something finally triggers them. Out it all comes. And I'm sure we've all been there, right? But that's not the only way anger gets expressed. So you might say, that's not me. I'm not like that. Maybe not. But actually, anger comes out in all sorts of other ways, often more subtle, often perhaps less intense. But over the period of time that perhaps we're talking about, it's just as powerful and potentially just as destructive. And the people who bear the brunt of our anger are rarely the people that have caused it. Have you noticed that? The people who bear the brunt of our anger are rarely the people who've caused it. Anger is actually a secondary emotion. So any counselor will tell you that actually uh, it works a bit like this. Um, anger is the, uh, the expression of something that's deeper. So what we see is anger. What we offer or react in is anger. But actually that is sat underneath, sorry, sat on top of a whole load of other emotions underneath it. So being worried, annoyed, sad, frustrated, hurt, offended, anxious, guilty, guilt, grief, insecure, disrespected, helpless, shame, tricked, regret, etc., etc., etc. When someone is expressing anger, what they're actually doing is defending themselves against all those other emotions. Because they are just as powerful in some ways particularly when you put them all together, and not knowing how to face them, not even knowing they're there, not knowing why they're there, is so terrifying that what we do is we actually react in self-defense, in anger, to protect ourselves. And we displace the pain and the emotions onto someone or something else. That's what anger is. That's what's going on when you lose your temper or when it comes out in these perhaps more insipid subtle ways. And so often we find ourselves being quite defended, defensive. Actually, what's really going on is we're angry. Because some cocktail of those things underneath the surface is just flared up. And we don't even understand it. Never mind know what to do about it. So we just defend ourselves, but we do it in anger. It's a self-defense mechanism. And sometimes, at its very best, that's a necessity. But actually, over time, if we don't deal with our anger properly, it will kill us. And it will kill other people in the process. So, at the risk of oversimplifying it, there are basically two ways we outwork our anger. The first is the explosive anger, personified in anger from inside out, where we just rage, like the guy that came into my office. You idiot! But the other, uh, and this is the issue that for, is true for most of us, is what we would call passive-aggressive anger. Passive-aggressive behavior. What happens is, as adults, uh, as we get older, we, we learn that to completely lose the plot every time we feel like it gets us into trouble, gets us nowhere, we end up breaking relationships, we get isolated. So we learn, hopefully parents are coaching you as a kid, you can't just blow your top every time you don't get your own way. Right? So uh, over time, we get a bit more sophisticated at reining in 
that explosive anger, most of us. But what we don't ever do is work out why we're angry in the first place, deal with the underlying issues. And so what happens is we just become passive-aggressive in our anger. So here's one definition of the two of these. Explosive anger, one writer says, is when we're confrontational, it's immediate, it's inappropriately honest. Often you say things in the heat of the moment that you really think, and then you wish you hadn't said, like eight seconds later, if not earlier. Yeah? Ever done that? There's a saying that, you know, if you want to know what someone really thinks, listen to what they say when they're angry. Because the truth comes out. Not always helpfully. It's what one writer says, it's self-enhancing at the expense of others right there in the moment. It's self-enhancing, it's self-protecting, it's self-serving right there. That's explosive anger. Passive-aggressive anger is emotionally dishonest. We don't actually acknowledge what's really going on. We just play a little game. It's fine. Ever said that to somebody who's really hacked you off? It's fine. No, it's not. And you're not okay with it. But passive-aggressive, you see, is about conflict avoidance. So the last thing we're going to do in that moment is go, yeah, outside now. (laughs) Sometimes that would be better, actually, than some of the dysfunctional ways we handle our anger. It's indirect. Uh, You say something to your friend about something over there, what you're really saying is, that made me really angry, but I'm not going to go there, so I'm just going to tell you about it. There was this situation at work, dot, dot, dot. It's indirect, and you draw other people in to validate you. And one writer says, it's self-enhancing at the expense of others, but later. So you're delaying facing the music to try to avoid the conflict, but the conflict is still there. The anger is still there inside you. The issue hasn't been resolved. You're just not going to see it out right there, there and then, with the person or the issue that's made you angry in the first place. Um, children do this when they sulk. And adults do this when they sulk. I did some pastoral work not so long ago with a couple uh, who shall remain nameless, obviously. And what was basically, it was funny because we got them to laugh about it in the end, but they hadn't spoken for five weeks. It was basically a big sulk-off. Like, who can hold the sulk the longest? It was passive-aggressive anger. They were really angry with each other. But rather than just having a good old argy-bargy and getting it out, they just did this sulk-off. And it needed some help to break this kind of dysfunctional pattern. Are you tracking so far? Am I reading your mail? Some of you are honest enough, yes. Now, here's what I've observed over the years. Uh, I'm more prone to passive aggression than explosive anger. So is Kath, uh, although we have our moments. What I've noticed is that Christians, particularly, are really bad at passive-aggressive behavior. As in, that's often what you get in the church. And it's really difficult to handle. And it's really difficult to lead people when there's passive-aggressive behavior in the mix. And we do that because we know we're not meant to be explosive in our anger. We know that can't be right. But we've got this bad theology around anger full stop, which we'll come to in a moment. And we don't like conflict as Christians. So we basically default to some passive 
aggressive thing. And so what we do is we kind of put on the shiny, happy face and we avoid the issue. So, so I've sat down with people and I've said, and I've actually pushed past that and said, what's the issue you have with me? You're being passive aggressive. No, I'm not. Uh, no, I think you are. Because you used to look me in the eye, but you don't anymore. You used to come and talk to me, but you don't anymore. I've obviously upset you somehow. You're angry with me, but you don't think you can get angry with the vicar in an explosive way, which is probably right. Uh, and, and so, but you don't want to have a conflict moment, so you just avoid it. But you're angry. And actually, it's eating you up, not me. So I'm doing this because I love you, but you're being passive-aggressive. It's rife in the church. Books have been written about it. People have done PhDs on it. Clergy get trained on how to handle passive-aggressive behavior. It's so tricky. So, what do we do about it? To understand what's going on when we get angry and how to deal with it, I think we need to look into the scriptures and see what God has to say. You'd expect me to say that, obviously. If we don't, it will continue to kill us slowly but surely. It will continue to leak out of us, if not explode out of us, and continue to cause damage untold. So the first thing we need to see or remember is that, as the scriptures put it, Anger itself is not the problem. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. He does not say anger is a sin, which is the common theological mistake most of us default to. Christians can't possibly be angry with each other because we're meant to be at peace with one another. No, no, the way you make peace with one another is by resolving the issues that you've got between you, where anger may have validly or invalidly flared up. He says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So basic starting point is this, that how we handle anger is the issue, not whether we have it at all. Notice uh, what the scriptures say about God and then us. Psalm 86, and this is just one of a whole load of options I could have picked out from the Old Testament, what it says about God. But you, Lord says David, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God himself gets angry. He's just slow to anger. And James, we looked at James uh, earlier in the year, James says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Wouldn't it be better if we did those two things first? We wouldn't get to number three uh, as quickly. And slow to become angry. The issue is not getting angry. It's an emotion. It's telling you something that's going on in your body, in your heart, in your mind. You need to pay attention to it. What's up for discussion is how you deal with that and how you handle that. We are to be slow to anger. In other words, the Bible is not saying don't ever get angry. And nor is it saying it's okay to get angry. It's saying be slow to anger. And in your anger, don't sin. Don't deal with it in such a way that is destructive, that causes pain to you and other people. Learn what's going on and how to deal with it. There are things that we should get angry about. There's this thing called righteous anger. I haven't got time to go there today. 
But you should be angry when you watch the news and see certain things happening. For example, the way that the United States is treating children of illegal immigrants. It should make you angry. If that doesn't trigger an anger response in you when you hear that and see that, then check your heart. Are you alive? But how we deal with that is really important. Uh, John of Christus, Chris, I never know how to say this, Chrysotum, he, he says this. This is 300-something AD. He who is not angry, whereas he has cause to be, sins. If, if you don't get angry about certain things, that's also a sin. Wake up, church. Feel it. Do something about it. For unreasonable patience, he says, is the hotbed of many vices. It fosters negligence and incites not only the wicked, but the good to do wrong. We can't do that, church. Owen put some, uh, retweeted something uh, late last night, I think it was, where he said, uh, history won't care how we felt about something in the moment. What it'll tell us is what we did about it. I'm paraphrasing. It was more eloquent than that. So what is anger? Really? How might we see it from a biblical perspective so that actually it becomes something that we can use to help us understand what's going on for us, but also how we might better love and serve the world? Tim Keller puts it like this, and I think this is really helpful. He says, anger is love in motion towards a threat to that which we love. Anger, he says, is love in motion towards a threat to that which we love. In other words, when something that's precious to us is threatened, we have a response of anger to that because we love this thing. God is slow to anger, but he is angry. Why is he angry? Because that which he loves is threatened. What does he love? Hello? You, yes, well done. Uh, Us. God loves us. And we are threatened by sin and the devil and death, and that makes him angry, and so it motivates him in love to do something about it. Anger, in its pure form, is an expression of love. So parents of little children, when their child is threatened by something, they will respond in a form of anger because that thing that they love, rightly, is under threat and they want to protect it. That's what anger in its pure form is. The issue is that we don't experience anger in its pure form because we ourselves are impure, we're imperfect, we're broken. We're being transformed, we're being made whole, but in and of ourselves there, are, there is evidence, is there not, that we're marred and scarred by sin. So St. Augustine famously said, the essence of sin is disordered love. The essence of sin is disordered love. The problem isn't that we love, and the problem isn't that we, don't, isn't that we get angry when things we love are threatened, it's that we love the wrong things for the wrong reasons, in the wrong order, and then we defend and protect that. So if you want to know what you love, if you want to know what's most precious to you, it's the thing you will most defend. Either in self-protection or self-defense, that's what we're doing when we get angry. We're actually 
doing a form of self-defense. And so often what happens is that we love someone or something more than God himself, and in effect we make them an idol that we put our trust in instead of God. And when that which we get something from that, when that is threatened, we get angry because we need to defend it and defend our right to have it and keep it because it gives us something. Identity, status, relational status, uh, an addiction, a false comfort, a lie, or some projection of who we are. Whatever it is, that thing that we need because it gives us something. When that's threatened, we will defend it. So what's going on often when we get angry is that something happens to us, someone says something to us, and we feel threatened, and so we go into self-defense mode, we get angry, but the very thing that's being done to us or not done to us or said to us or not said to us is rarely directly linked to the thing that we're actually defending. What's going on is that we feel that that is now under threat. We believe something about what's being said or done to us, and we feel threatened. So we go into fight or flight mode. We go into protect mode. We get angry, which is why sometimes you will have been with people, and you've said something or not said something, and they've got really angry with you, and you've got no idea why. You ever had those moments where you're like, what did I say? What did I do? I have no idea. What actually was going on was they were defending something else that they love at all costs. So if you want to understand anger, if you want to deal with your anger, here are two questions that you have to ask. The first is this, what am I defending? What am I defending? And more often than not, when you get real honest with yourself, is you'll realize what you're defending is ego, pride, a source of self-esteem or value, something you've made an ultimate thing in your life that can't cope with that instead of God. And because you become dependent on it, when it's under threat, you will react in anger. Let me give you an example. You have a role in your organization, which comes with a title, maybe a better office, a nice car parking space. And that gives you a sense of self-worth that you didn't already have. But then you get made redundant. And you're angry. And what you'll say is, I'm angry that I was made redundant. I'm angry that they treated me like that. How dare they? I worked that company for 25 years. I bust a gut. But actually, that's not why you're angry. What you're angry is that you've lost something that you'd put your trust in, that you'd loved because of what it gave you. And it's gone. And you feel threatened. So you're going to react in anger. Here's a second question. This is Andy Stanley. He's a church leader in America. He says this. I think he's absolutely right. It's another way of coming at it. He says, you've got to ask the question, who owes me? He says, what's going on when you're angry is that you think someone somewhere owes you something. You're entitled to something. Who owes you? The company that's just made you redundant. They owe me. 
They owe me loyalty. I worked for them for 25 years. I did all the stuff no one else wanted to do. How dare they make me redundant? They owe me. Or maybe you've come home from work and all the things that you hoped would have been done at home haven't been done. And you react in anger because you owe, you're owed those things. You're out working. And you get home and these things haven't been done. That You're owed those things. That's the deal, isn't it? Isn't that our account? Or maybe... I'm going to go here. Maybe... Maybe church wasn't quite what you thought it would be. Maybe the vicar didn't do what you thought he should do. And he owes you. You know, one of the things we do when people come to us from another church is we find out what's the story. And every so often we'll get a conversation that goes a bit like this. Well, in my last church, they... And what I'm thinking is, you're angry. You've left. It's a passive-aggressive move because you're avoiding the conflict. But you've come with this mindset that they owe you. What are you defending? Who owes you? Who have you decided, for some reason or another, owes you something? That's what's going on when we're angry. We're defending ourselves. We think we're owed something. Tim Keller says this. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth. It is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshipping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. Who owes you? What are you defending? The dad that walked into my office, here's the story. When he was 20, he wanted to be the youth pastor in the church he went to. And his parents said, no way. You go and get yourself a proper job, whatever that is. I think we do a proper job, but, you know, it's just different. It is a bit weird, but, you know. And you go earn some money, and you go buy a house, and you go provide for your family. And so he did, faithfully. And he did quite well. But all along, there's this call from God to serve in the church so that the church can serve the world. And it's never gone away. And he's defending it. And it's under threat all the time. He's got no outlet for it. And so when his boy has the opportunity to not make the mistake that he made, he can't get it. And he wants to live it out through his son. So he loads onto his son this expectation. His son did not want to be a youth worker. He only put an application in to keep his dad off his back. And then he quietly withdrew it and didn't tell his dad because he was afraid, passive-aggressive. And so the father explodes in anger because he feels like he's owed. Do you see that? So here's what happened. I had a whiteboard in my office at the time and I drew an iceberg and I drew the waterline and I said, anger's up here, 
Let's fill in underneath here. Two hours later, sobbing his heart out, he tells me that story. And I look him in the eye, and I say to him, what's God calling you to do? He said, God's calling me to be a youth worker. He's 55 at this point. He runs a business. He's miserable. And I said to him, what are you going to do about it? Well, to cut a long story short, is he actually got ordained and is now a chaplain in a youth prison in South Auckland, doing amazing things. His son has his own business and loves it. Matthew chapter 18. Peter here asks Jesus a question, verse 21. The question is essentially, how many times should I forgive people who wrong me? How do I deal with my anger, my resentment, my issues with other people when they wrong me? How do I deal with that? They've heard Jesus teaching about forgiveness. They know that forgiveness is the antidote to so many things. It's the antidote to your anger. It's the only way you're going to be set free is to forgive people that you think owe you something, that you think somehow have threatened you and caused you to have to defend yourself, that they somehow are the, the cause of your internal pain until you forgive them, for they know not what they do. You will be riddled and trapped with anger. And so Jesus is asked this question, how many times, God, have I got to do this? Seven times? which is the biblical number of perfection. So what Peter's really saying here is, that's a super generous posture, right, Jesus? Check me out, I think I get it, seven times. To which he goes, no, 77 times. Or in some translations, 70 times seven, which is 490. The point Jesus is making is, you don't get it. You don't put a number on it, you just keep doing it. You just have to keep forgiving people. Because if you don't, anger will eat you up. You'll just keep thinking you're owed something. You'll just keep defending yourself. And you'll be trapped, worshipping the wrong thing and never free. Now, um, he then tells this story to illustrate it. And what you've got here is this kind of story of the, 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 the master and the servant. And there's this servant who owes a debt to the master. And it says it's... Um, 10,000 talents. Now, roughly speaking, that's about $15 billion in today's money, right? So we, don't, we lose that unless we put it into an equivalent. 10,000 talents is like, you ain't ever going to pay that back. 15 billion. Like, good luck with that. So Jesus is making a point. It's like, imagine a scenario. You owe somebody $15 billion. And you say to them, I'll, I'll work hard to pay it back. I'll become your slave. So initially, that's what the master does. There's this kind of deal. You owe me, so you can pay off your debt. But then it says that the master has pity. Mercy is actually the word in the original text, on the servant, and and writes off the debt. Says, you don't owe me anything. And then you think that's the end of the story. You'd think the servant would be like, yes, glory. I'm set free. I don't owe anybody anything. But of course, we know the story goes on. And in the second half, what happens is this servant has then the opportunity to pay that forward. But they don't. And so he's described as the unmerciful servant. 
And so the master finds out about this and he's absolutely livid. Why? Because he's angry that someone else would treat someone that he loves. And so he defends. He's also like, you don't get it. How dare you? And that's the point of the story. Is that if you are given much or forgiven much, you too must then pay it forward. That's how it works. It's the antidote to anger. It's forgiveness. But notice the language here. There's language of debt and money and owed, which is the language I've deliberately been using. There's no way the servant can ever repay the debt. So how on earth could they, with any integrity, then go and load onto somebody else a much more manageable debt? They don't get it. So what does this mean for us? A couple of things as we land. Number one, nobody owes you. Nobody owes you. Nobody owes you. More often than not, the reason why we're angry has got nothing to do with what someone has or hasn't done, has or hasn't said. What's happened is what they have or haven't done or have or haven't said has triggered something in us, a response to a perceived threat to something that we love, and we defend it. And sometimes they may do it deliberately. Sometimes they may come at you, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Sometimes it gets nasty. I understand that. But generally speaking, what we have to understand is that what we're angry about isn't the actual thing, but about what that's made us think and believe about something, about what we think might be under threat. So someone says something to you, and it goes through all this complex set of filters, and it becomes validating data for your fear or the thing that you kind of are fighting to hold on to and protect. They don't even know about that. So that guy who walks into my office, I don't owe him anything. He thinks I do, but I don't. And often that's the case for us. The second thing we have to understand is that unless we then choose to forgive people anyway, we're the ones trapped, not them. The forgiveness that you need to give to someone is to set you free. You will not be able to face up to the stuff going on deeper in you until you forgive people that in any way, shape, or form threaten you and cause you to defend and feel like you are owed something. That person, that church, that employer, that moment in your marriage, that issue with your child, that's not the issue. The issue's in here. That's the issue. That's what you've got to face up to, the stuff under the water. And it requires us being willing to analyze our anger. What's the cause of it? What's the reason for it? What's the backstory? Why on earth did I react like that? What am I defending? Who do I think owes me something? I'm going to forgive those people because it's not them. And that gives me a buffer, a moment, a window to actually look at myself. See, this requires understanding, and this is the point of the parable, that God has written off his debt with you. The only person that could legitimately say to one of us, you owe me, is God. The wages of sin are death. You owe me, kids. You've rebelled against me in my name. You've failed to keep my covenants. You owe me. 
But he doesn't say that. What he does is he writes off the 10 billion, the 15 billion. He sends Jesus, who hangs on a cross in our places, uh, raised to new life and sets us free. And so the Father says to me, you owe me nothing. And that means you now have to pay that forward. Nobody owes you anything because the only thing you need is God and he's given himself to you in his entirety to set you free. So you can set everyone else free. Pay it forward. Nobody owes you anything. Forgive, forgive, forgive. When we put someone into debt, which is what we're doing when we say, you owe me, it's your fault. You're the reason I'm angry. You did this to me. You didn't do this to me. You said, you didn't say. You didn't give me that job. You didn't give me that role in the church. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't. What you're doing is you're putting them in debt to you. And that makes us like the unmerciful servant. How dare we, when God has given us everything, to set us free, to become who we're meant to be? How dare we put other people into debt? Unless we do those two things, we can never get to the place where we make God the ultimate thing. Where we actually go, God, it's not them on that. It's the imperfect me. And you love me anyway. And you said you'd heal me and transform me. So here I am. Here's that complex cocktail of emotions under the surface. I don't understand the story. I don't know why I'm like this. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do, God. I'm not going to pay it forward. I'm not going to put it onto other people. I'm going to pay your forgiveness forward. And I'm going to come to you and say, God, captivate me. Show me your glory. Show me your love. Show me your power. Transform me. Set me free. Read my mail. Work in me by your spirit so that I'm no longer as anxious, as fearful, as whatever it is. Show me what my idols are. Show me what I put in the place of you. Show me what I'm getting value from that I should be asking you to give me value for. Show me, show me, show me. And captivate me and set me free. That's what we have to do. And that's why we talk about reading your Bible and praying and getting ministered to and being in a small group and all of these things. Because unless you let God come in, unless you sit undefended in the presence of the Father who loves you, whose anger was slow but sufficient to set you free, you're not going to be free indeed. Let's pray. I'd love you, if you're open to this, to to perhaps just close your eyes and perhaps put your hands out as a sign to God that you're open to receiving his love, his mercy afresh. But it's also an undefended posture. I'm going to just lay myself bare, Lord, before you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us what it is that we're defending. That you'd show us who we think owes us something. 
Help us, even right now, just to write off the debts of people we've put into debt to us. To forgive them for where they consciously and most likely didn't realize what they were doing. Where they've hurt us. Where they've failed us. Where they've had the guts to challenge us in love, to set us free, and we just reacted in self-defense rather than humility. Where they were actually right and we were wrong. Help us to forgive them. Shine a spotlight on our false idols. Show us where we're defending ourselves for fear of being found out. Where we've withdrawn from relationships because we're angry but don't want to face conflict, so we're just passive-aggressive. Pour out your forgiveness again, Holy Spirit. Wash us clean. Set us free. Show us again that we are owed nothing. And we owe nothing. That we're totally free. Free in you, God, and therefore free with others. Able to just say, it's, I forgive you. Help me. And may this be a family where, more than ever, we're honest and real. Slow to anger. Where we actually face the issues internally. Rather than displace them somehow externally. Some of you right now, I want to encourage you, may just need to quietly in the heart, your heart forgive God where you feel like he, he owes you something. God, I've served you. God, I've been in church. God, I've, you owe me. He doesn't owe you anything. You might need to forgive other people. You might even need to tell them. If they're in the room, do it before you go home.